Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Right now, resilience, boy, is that a hot topic these days, and it is what sees us through challenging times like the ones we're in at the moment. But apart from things like the pandemic, stuff happens in every career, and resilience, or you might use the word adaptability or grit, or whatever your favorite word is, are all the shades of the same thing, and they're the, what's going to get you through some of those most difficult, challenging times. I like to say for the record, in my opinion, they are all about it facing adversity with a belief that you're going to come out the other side. Now, I want to know that, note that that doesn't mean that you're going to return to normal. It's not about bouncing back, as we often say. It's coming out the other side, often in a slightly different form coming through. Now, I'm always inspired by stories of how people have navigated the challenges in their career and in their lives. And today, we're going to hear more of those stories. First, from the first female pilot helicopter in the U.S. Army, and then I want to hear experiences of the people that she has worked with. And then lastly, we'll take a look at the model that she uses to help develop grit in your own career and in your own life. So with me today is Shannon Huffman Polson, and she's the author of a book, The Grit Factor, Courage, Resilience, and Leadership in the Most Male-Dominated Organization in the World. I will also say she's the founder of the Grit Institute, which is a leadership institute committed to the ethical whole leadership development. They've got online and sported training. Now, what makes Shannon so unique and why she's so qualified to talk about the most male-dominated organization in the world Some of us might take issue if there are more male-dominated ones, but we'll see. Shannon was one of the first women to fly the Apache helicopter in the U.S. Army, and she combines her passion for creativity with firsthand experience in and the study of leadership and grit to discover world-class training for companies and organizations. Um, Her first book is called North of Hope, A Daughter's Arctic Journey, as if that isn't enough about how to have grit flying the first Apache helicopter in the U.S. Army. Shannon, welcome to the show. Wanda, thanks so much. It's so good to be here with you. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I am excited both to just to speak to you, to hear your model about grit, and to know what your experiences were like trying to navigate all of these um, challenges in your career, if you will. So start at the top. What got you started on this topic of grit? Why do you care so much about it? You know, I always grew up talking about grit with my parents. That was the the term that we used, which has now become much more popular, but as one of the most important things that we could develop uh, in our own lives. But this most recent work, and this isn't recent per se, but about seven years ago, a young leader reached out to me and I had been then out of the military for some time. You know, I had a chance to lead two flight platoons and a flight company on three different continents, but then I transitioned out of the military through the tech school at Dartmouth for my MBA, and then spent time in the corporate world as well in both the medical device and technology industries. And then I did leave uh, Microsoft ultimately to write my first book. 
But when this young leader reached out, I had left Microsoft, I'd published my first book, and she reached out and asked if I would mentor her as she began the same leadership journey that I had taken, you know, then 15 years ago. Now it's been over 20. And I immediately said yes, because I loved the concept of being able to help in any way that I could. But I was worried as soon as I said yes, that my experience as one of the first women flying the Apache and that integration into that all-male field was surely somewhat unique. And I wondered how it was that I could scale the advice that I was able to give to her. And then do, if I did that work, which I knew would be substantial, then scale the people to whom that work was available. And that is really the genesis of what became the Grit Factor, what became the Grit Institute. I started out with this, this nugget that, hey, grit was always the, the word that I used, that it wasn't always grace, it wasn't always graceful, um, but grit was what got me through. And so that's the way that I approached it. And I would say that it worked pretty well for all of the other leaders I had a chance to interview. And there were dozens of leaders in the vanguard of their fields who shared their stories and their lessons learned learned so generously that really created the framework that became the grit factor. Okay. I love that. It's not always grace or graceful. What a great expression because it isn't the truth. We, you know, we see people who've come through terrible crises in their lives or in their careers and they've just come out the other side and they tell the story as if, well, it just all naturally happened. And I think the truth is it isn't always as smooth as those stories frequently describe. Okay, before I get launched on your story in the military, and then I want to talk a little bit more about what happened after that in the corporate world as well. Um, But everybody uses these words for different meanings. You know, some people use grit to mean one thing and adaptability and resilience. How, when you're talking about grit, what do you mean? Yeah, you know, I have always defined grit uh, as I started to do this work as a dogged determination in the face of difficult circumstances. Now, Angela Duckworth obviously is the the kind of the premier researcher on the topic, and she goes deep into that one focused core area, and she will say it's passion and perseverance towards long-term goals. But really, when I think about those different terms of grit and resilience and adaptability, I sort of think of them as a Venn diagram. They all overlap each other, but none of them is exactly equated to another of those terms. Um, Adaptability comes out as a key to grit, for sure. It's a key element of grit. Um, and resilience, I, you know, as I started to do more and more work into grit, I had thought of it initially, and, and it turned out to not at all be this, that it was this, this one element, like this element you could take off the shelf and employ when you needed to employ it. And what really became evident over these years of interviews of other leaders in their fields as well is that grit is really woven into the core of who we are. And we'll get into that in the framework later, I know, but it's really much it is absolutely something you pull out for mile 23 of the marathon, as I like to say. You certainly need to pull out that discrete piece then. But it really is a long-term sort of a, a, a character attribute as well. So it's, it's sort of a both and, and it makes it much more nuanced, I think, than we sometimes discuss it. Yeah, I like that idea of the Venn diagram, that there's the grit, there's the adaptability, there's the resilience. And we might add to that, sometimes people talk about positivity as well as yet another piece. And what I find fascinating about this in the face of adversity is it's hard to know which one of those you really need. Like, do I just keep gutting it out, Um, you know, kind of that dogged determination and I don't really change? Or do I adapt and shift and go a completely opposite direction? Or do I lean into this positivity and gracefulness? I mean, how do you decide which one is needed? 
Well, and that is where I think the framework, and we could we could jump into that here or wait till it's a little bit later, but when we look at our lives in a more holistic sense in the past, present, and the future, right? So it's not just the challenge in front of us that we're considering, but we're considering it in the context of our past, in the context of our story and our core purpose. And I think when you consider the challenge that you're facing in the present related to these other elements of yourself that really make up who you are, I think it helps to teach you which way you're supposed to go because you're absolutely right. You don't want to just gut through everything. Grit is not a sustainable way to operate. It's also not the right answer in every circumstance. But I do find more often than not, the challenge is sticking with something for people as opposed to letting something go fairly easily. I think both can be the right or the wrong answer, depending on circumstance. But more often than not, it seems to be that people have a hard time getting through the hard times uh, when they should stick with it. And so that is certainly a, a, um, a nuance and, and a, uh, something that you have to be able to discern. But And it takes work like anything else, for sure. Right. I certainly see that need to stick with it longer in my coaching practice. So frequently people will talk with me about um, their career and what's next in their career. And often they're asking what's next because they're frustrated with an immediate manager. It's not so much about the job, but it's either about progression or the manager's in my way, or I don't like their style or some version of that. And many times hanging in with that a bit longer is going to get you further at the end of the day rather than just jumping ship. But as you said, it's hard to know. Well, before we get too far down on the model, I want to talk about your experiences because I think they're incredibly inspiring. So tell me a little bit about your experience first in the Army, and then we'll weave a little bit about the Arctic, and then we can go on to talk about any number of companies that you've worked with as well. So tell me about what happened with you in the army and in particular kind of what was key to your success there flying an Apache helicopter? Yeah, well, I, you know, I started out as a cadet in ROTC at Duke university and I was an English major. I had uh, no intention when I arrived at Duke of ever doing anything in the military, but I had attended a college fair where I saw the ROTC tables along with all the other clubs and fraternities and sororities and things like that and decided that I knew that finances were tight. I knew that I was already working two jobs and that I should probably give it a try and at least say that I'd tried it. And if I didn't like it, at least I'd, I'd given it a go. And so I, uh, I talked to all three of the ROTC tables and both Air Force and Navy want you to be engineer, uh, go engineering. And I was not interested in going engineering. And the Army said I could be in the liberal arts. So I um, signed up with Army ROTC. And that was the beginning. And I really did expect to essentially reject it um, by the end of the first year at the latest. But I ended up really enjoying the connection to the people that were part of the program. The cadre or the instructors were outstanding. And um And it really was a connection as well to something bigger than myself, which, you know, at that point in your life is, uh, it's it's important at all times. I think you start to really understand that about that age. So I was a part of ROTC for four years. The last two of those, I was also part of the National Guard because my scholarship was a two-year simultaneous membership program with the National Guard. So I drilled with the Guard as well. And just as I was getting ready to graduate, I drove out to Raleigh, North Carolina to receive my assignment for the years ahead. And the assumption was, of course, I'd take my commission in the National Guard and and serve in the Guard. 
And I remember I was not yet graduated. I was not yet commissioned. I was just a college senior. And I reported to this colonel and he was 20 years old behind a desk that seemed as wide as the room and shiny plate glass windows going up behind him and tried not to shake too much. And I saluted and he asked me to sit down and I, I did. And we exchanged a couple of pleasantries back and forth before the interchange that I would never forget. When he stopped mid-sentence, looked down his nose at me and said, you realize, cadet, never fly an attack aircraft. And I looked back at him and I recognized his comment for what it was meant to be, which was small and mean and cutting because at the time attack aircraft weren't open to women to fly. But I had also been around just long enough to realize that there were some times that you say, yes, sir. And so I said, yes, sir. And I drove back to the campus of Duke University to the uh, Army uh, ROTC detachment and requested a transfer out of the National Guard and onto active duty. And I'll say that that was the beginning of a time that I started to recognize how important it was going to be for me to decide to own my own story. And we'll talk about that, I know, in just a little bit. That uh, for the first time I was having either an ex, I was aware of the, an external narrative being imposed on me in a limiting way. And, um, and I was not interested in that limiting narrative at all. <laughs> And I can tell you many, many other anecdotes uh, like that. I could also tell you many anecdotes of people who were pretty spectacular along the way. I had, you know, I worked for some outstanding people. I had some amazing people work for me also. So it was definitely a combination of the two. But that first encounter with that colonel definitely set up, uh, set up a different expectation from what I'd grown up with, which was that I could do anything. And suddenly I was working in an environment where people didn't necessarily want me there at all. All right. So when you're in ROTC, how many women are in your class? You know, in ROTC, we actually had about 30% women, which was pretty amazing. I think it was a pretty high number for, uh, for Army ROTC at any given time. And we had some terrific other women who became very good friends and still are today. Okay. All right. Now, I'm going to flight school. So that, that, that number right. goes down and down and down <laughs> until I arrive. <laughs> All right. I'm interested in that drive back from Raleigh. So knowing the state and knowing Duke University's campus, thank you all the Dukies out there. Um, it's not a long drive. It might have taken you maybe 40 minutes to get from one point to the other. That's a pretty major life transformation decision that happened in the space of 40 minutes to an hour. So what is it that kicked in you that said, no, I'm not going to let this narrative define me? Are you aware of the thinking pattern? I, I don't think that I could honestly recall that um, this long after the fact, but I know, um, I mean, I, I tend to be, I have a, 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 an impulsive side to me for sure. And I was pretty frustrated and, and pretty actually quite angry at that, um, that limitation that had been articulated, even though it was a limitation that at the time was absolutely normal. Um, but the articulation of it and the intent in that articulation was was pretty clear. And again, this would be borne out in, in many other examples. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I think when you're 20, 21 years old, I, I don't know that you really know what you're signing up for at any given point. You think you do, but you don't know what you're signing up for when you, you agree to do something for the rest of your 20s, right? Right. <laughs> uh, and that's probably just as well, uh, because we get lots of good life experiences from that. But, um, but yeah, you're right. It is a pretty major decision to make in that short time. And I think, I, you know, by then I had become more and more connected to this concept of service to the, what that might entail. I'd gone through the six week camp that was required, you know, the summer before and three weeks of airborne school and 
all of these different types of experiences that help to get you a little bit more integrated into the concept of, of what a reality might be. You still okay. have relatively little idea, but. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. So I wasn't you- about to. So, yeah, this person is not going to tell you what you can and cannot do. I can sort of see a little bit of that fighter spirit coming through. The grit is exactly what we're talking about. Um, So you go, you see your officer on campus, you transfer immediately, and here you are. Did you go straight into flight school from there, or was there a step in between? I I had to graduate and be commissioned, and then, of course, later that spring, Congress changed the game on the colonel, lifted the combat exclusion clause, and suddenly every aircraft in the inventory was now officially open to women to fly as well as men. And uh, so I was home for about six months before my officer basic course in flight school began down at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And I reported in November after my graduation and uh, and began the process of initial entry rotary wing and officer basic course, graduated as an honor grad and requested and was assigned the AH-64A Apache. Okay. Wow. All right. Now, how many women are around you then? Yeah, so when I got to flight school itself, which is very much a a college-type atmosphere, uh, we had about 10% in our class, I think, which, again, was a higher number than I'd expected. There was only about 2% in aviation at the time as a whole. Um, In my Apache class, there was out of – I think we had – 10 of us maybe in, a, in one Apache class. And there was actually one other woman who had been a Cobra pilot before who was in my cohort. So that was, that was interesting. Um, right. We went through three months of the Apache training. And then I reported to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. That's 18th Airborne Corps, you know, tip of the spear, the Army's Contingency Corps, ready to deploy anywhere in the world within 18 hours. And I was 23 years old and I arrived to the 229th Attack Aviation Regiment. And I was the only woman Apache pilot out of 120 male combat pilots in the regiment. So that's where... Um, that's where you start to realize what the reality of the situation was and what I'd actually asked for and, and what the experience might be. All right. So now what got you through that? Is this grid again that gets you through one out of 128? I know a little bit about Fort Bragg. It's not, yeah, it's uh, an interesting place and an interesting spot in the world. You know, I will say that one of the things, yes, there was a huge component of grit that was part of that. And um, there was a huge component where I continued to learn that I had to move forward in deciding that I was going to own my own story and I was going to control my own narrative. That was a big piece of moving forward in that environment. Um, I also was really lucky that I had an outstanding battalion commander when I first started and uh, he was incredibly supportive. His wife was also a battalion commander in Blackhawks. And so he uh, had absolutely no issue that at least was apparent with me being there. And I, I learned a ton from him. I also had a really good platoon sergeant. Now it took me a year to get to that platoon and that's a whole other story. But when I took that platoon, I had an amazing platoon sergeant and any young officer needs an amazing non-commissioned officer to work with, or, or it will be unlikely that you'll be successful. And I had the best. And so really, truly, I mean, it is a team that gets anything done. And while you have to, I think, be willing to take control of your own story, be willing to claim your own narrative, you also team that gets things done. And I was lucky to have very good people on that team. This is a piece of research I'm going to start probably in 2022. Um, I think we way underestimate the importance of people who are ahead of us and just behind us or beside us in helping us achieve some of the amazing things that people have achieved. I just don't think we acknowledge, we always think about it as 
one individual going out against the obstacles and making it happen. And I think it takes a team. Okay, now I have to ask, I know that the Army is doing a bunch of training on resilience and positivity, some coming out of Martin Seligman's work at the University of Pennsylvania. Did you go through that training, and or was there anything about the Army training that was helpful for you in navigating these challenges? Yeah, I know that training began after I left the military, and I've read a great deal of it, and it is, in fact, part of some of the exercises that I include in the GRIT Factor as well as in the training going for GRIT at the GRIT Institute, but it was something that was developed after I left, and, you know, I left um, the military in August of 2001. That's when my eight years was up. And I went directly to business school up in New Hampshire. And uh, and September 11th happened about two to three weeks after I left. So had I not left, I would have not been able to leave the operational life for peacekeeping operations suddenly skyrocketed. And that's really tough for soldiers and their families. So that was yeah. really the impetus behind this development of this master's lens training that, of course, was right. deployed um, across the Army at right. that point. Okay. So is there anything in your personality, you think, that makes you, or your mindset, that makes you better at this grit stuff? Is there something about you that we can't copy? Oh, well, that you can't copy. You can copy anything you want. I don't know if you'd want to copy all of it. Uh, You know, I was brought up, um, (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I was, I think the way that I was brought up was definitely uh, competitive with myself. And, um, and I was brought up to push myself and to, to strive and to try to always be better and to not accept uh, uh, anything less than my best. And that is the benefit of parents that, that, that brought me up that way. And I can tell you several childhood stories that I think are formative in that regard. But, um, but I think that was a big part of it. Um, I also have a, the second piece of it was that my parents divorced when I was 12 and I was absolutely as the eldest child, not interested in going to family counseling, not interested in any of it. And I essentially was able to keep everybody off my case if I just did a lot of things and I did them really well. And, uh, you know, after my dad died, I found his journal and he said, you know, it seems like Shannon's doing great. She's, you know, she's skydiving, she's debating, she's doing all these things. And I, I think back to the it was a really hard time and I was having a hard time, but I was not going to share that. And that was just part of how I was made up. Uh, So I think there's probably good and bad in those various personality traits that ended up informing how I approach things. But I also enjoy a good challenge. I love an adventure. I love a challenge. And by the time I'd gone to flight school, I'd climbed Denali, had already been, you know, skydiving, had my advanced parachutist license. So, so this is not something that was um, completely out of the blue. Okay, so you are an adventurer, a risk taker, we would say. So first off, flying an al- helicopter, an Apache helicopter, climbing Denali, which is not for the faint of heart, um, paratrooper, and you'd already mentioned that earlier you'd already done skydiving. So clearly you're an adventure seeker. That must be part of who you are, yes? I, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> okay, all right. Now... <laughs> So I'm getting the sense of somebody who um, chose to do something, not expecting to like it, but thinking maybe this will help pay the bills. Not a bad reason for a whole right. host of factors, but who comes to you know this ROTC training. And for those who are not in the U.S., that is, um, I forget what ROTC we used to say, but it's- uh, Reserve can, Officer Training Corps. Thank you. Yep. 
It's the in the U.S. It's the precursor to being a commissioned officer, as many other around the world would know. And then it comes with a requirement that you do some service afterwards. Apologies for my non-U.S. colleagues that I did not explain that one in the beginning. But here we are. You decide to join this ROTC, and therefore a commitment to be in the military and the army because a the army is going to let you do your liberal arts major in English. Um, as opposed to engineering, and B, it's a way to pay the finances, all right? And then we go through this, and you actually like the colleagues and the instructors and think this is okay, and there's a sense of purpose that has some meaning to it, and all right, you're going to carry through with it until you encounter someone who says, oh, no, you can't. Never here. And that sends off a determination of, yes, I will, and you go back and immediately change, and then push your way through with some support of a great commander and his wife and a great platoon sergeant. So you have a lot of support around you and off we go for success. Now, I summarized that one because what I want to know is in all the people that you've worked with, how similar is that story to the people that you've worked with in pursuing and finding their own grit? You know, every single leader that I've talked to, and I think this is an aspect of leadership. Uh, so this is, this is part and parcel of who they have to be to be a successful leader, acknowledges with, um, with great respect and deep gratitude, the people who were around them. That doesn't mean it wasn't mm-hmm. hard. That doesn't mean that they didn't have to do a lot of really tough stuff on their own, because at the end of the day, it's still a lonely road. Um, but every single one will be incredibly grateful, especially in the military to this non-commissioned officer group that supports the soldiers and really makes things happen um, and to the people around them. And that doesn't, again, mean it was it was easy at all. But I think every single one of them would say that it's part of it. You have to do this as part of a team. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've never talked to a leader who doesn't talk about the power of the team. Now, how they see the team and how they use the team may vary person to person, but the power of the team is always there. And when I think about advising people about their careers, you know, we always say when you first start in your career, you need a network. This is why you need a network because you never know who you're going to need or where you're going to need them. Um, And having that broad base of people that you can call on for ideas or for support or for a sounding board, I think is absolutely critical. And when we look at resilient stories, apart from just your particular example, that comes through heart and soul that resilient individuals tend to have this broad base of people that they can call on. So here we are. It's not just you out there by yourself fighting against the winds. All right. um, So are there any stories from people that you've worked through that you want to share with us what really got them through? Yeah. Oh, gosh, there's so many incredible stories. And and do you mean relative to teams in particular or in... Uh, in the more holistic sense? In the, whole, in the more holistic sense. Just kind of, you know, one short one was okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think uh, one of my favorite stories, and I actually can't really say that any is my favorite because they're all so outstanding, but um, uh, in addition to the refusal to quit, right? And that was definitely what triggered my uh, my response to that colonel. And I think I shared that with I share that with every single leader that I had a chance to interview and talk to. But was uh, the other example that I love to tell is the one of Shay Haver, and she is one of the first women Army Rangers. Uh, one of the first women to be an infantry commander. She's still serving. She's actually the commander of the old guard now who uh, who helped to 
lay Ruth Bader Ginsburg in state. So you would have seen a female right. infantry officer there and she's, that's Shay. That's her. But she tells the story of going through incredibly difficult patrol and it's in the middle of the woods at Ranger School, which is one of the most difficult military trainings. And, uh, and she starts to think that she's hearing voices, that she's going crazy. It's the middle of the night. You know, they're carrying heavy packs. They have no idea how long they're going to go. And she sits down by a tree and she thinks it's, that's it. She's, she's so far behind and she's, she's starting to lose it. And she reconnects to her core purpose. And for her, that meant the uh, connection to other women that she had begun ranger school with, to her family, to the soldiers that she knew that she was going to be supporting. And she reconnected to that concept of core purpose. I have a whole chapter in the book about this because this is so important. And with that reconnection, she was able to, to push herself back up to her feet. And then she started to run. And she runs and she runs and she runs. And the sun begins to come up over a hill in the middle of the woods where she is with her backpack running through the woods. And she sees the ranger instructor up on the top of that hill. And she realizes she's in front of everybody. But it was that reconnection to in the midst of literally thinking she was going crazy. I mean, it was that physically and mentally impossible to do what she was doing. And, uh, and that reconnection to core purpose allowed her to get back up and to come out ahead. That is, and that ties right back to where you started at the beginning about your own story, about controlling your narrative, not let somebody else define your story, own your story. And you've said a couple of times this sort of connecting to your core purpose. And I can imagine everybody listening to this right now is is on edge of their seat saying, okay, how, 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 how? So just to leave it to cliffhanger, this is a perfect time for a break. <laughs> so with me today is <laughs> Shannon Huffman Polson. She's the author of The Grit Factor, Courage, Resilience, and Leadership in the Most Male-Dominated Organization in the World. And she's the founder of The Grit Institute. I should also say her first book is called North of Hope, A Daughter's Arctic Journey. Now, as you've heard, Shannon was the, one of the first women to fly the Apache helicopter in the U.S. Army. She's gone on to do an awful lot of other very interesting things, including her MBA, and then leading in a number of very large corporations, including Boston Scientific and Microsoft Corporation. We're not going to tell stories about them specifically, but what we're going to do when we come back is to work a little bit through Shannon's model now of how she helps other people find their own level of grit, including their own center purpose. And so with that, we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Shannon Huffman Polson. She's the author of The Grit Factor, and she's also the founder of the Grit Institute. We've been talking about Sharon's journey of her own levels of grit. And I think the thing that I take the most um, from is just how important other people have been to her in finding those moments and in fighting through those really difficult, challenging moments and sticking with it and coming out to the other end. We also just heard a great story about Shay whose last name I forget, Hefner, Hever, Hever, um, who's also has some of the same kind of stories of that, that kind of connecting a bit with the other people in your life and how important those other people are. So Shannon, over the time, when this young mentor comes to you and says, can you help me with grit? And you start working with her and working with loads of other people. You've developed a model that you use to teach other people how to have more grit. So walk us through those elements, what they're about and why they matter. Yeah, you know, and this, the book, again, this model comes from synthesizing the stories and the lessons learned from these dozens of leaders in the vanguard of their fields. They all happen to be women, they happen to be military, uh, but there are early women general officers, a combat rescue swimmer from the Coast Guard, one of the first women Army Rangers we just talked about, one of the first women to serve on submarines and aviators from three generations from World War II to the present. So this phenomenal cohort of people. And, uh, and from their experiences, when I started to synthesize all of those interviews and then start to, started to do the background research as well, it really broke out into three parts, uh, commit, learn, and launch. And I've now actually, since the book was published, put this together into what I, I'm considering really the good. And that commit, learn, and launch connects to past, present, and future. So commit is the first phase. That's the work of owning your own story. It's not just accepting it, but it's actually taking the raw material of your life and deciding how it is that you're going to shape it in the trajectory that you want it to go, because that's an active opportunity and responsibility for each one of us. And then it's drilling down into core purpose, which I really think of as the bedrock and the foundation of grit. The second part is learn. That's a deep engagement in the present. And we just talked about teams. That's a big part of that is drawing your circle or building your team and very importantly, being part of other people's teams, which is a part of that same sort of a network uh, effect. The second part of that is active listening. Uh, it's the most strategic leadership skill that comes out of every conversation with a general officer. And it's an art and it's a science. And we talk about both of those things in one of the chapters under this idea of learning. And then finally, it's building grit and resilience, because it turns out it's not just something some people have and some people don't. It's absolutely something that you can build. 
And so we do borrow from the Army's Master Resilience Training Program in part some of that positive psychology work from University of Pennsylvania for the exercises that we share there. But but taking that responsibility to build grit and resilience in ourselves is, again, an opportunity and it's an active responsibility. And then finally, launch is uh, looking towards the future with that grounding in the past, that engagement in the present. And then we look at really audacity, the willingness to take risks and to face failure and what you do when you hit either one of those. Uh, the requirement to be authentic, if you want to sustain your leadership over any period of time, being authentic to who you are is critical. And then ultimately, adaptability. So that's the, that's the grit triad now that's broken out. And that's all surrounded by a mindset, uh, which is a mindset of grounded optimism. And I talk about the Stockdale paradox in the book. Many of your listeners will know about that. But not optimism, but grounded optimism. So that's how, uh, that's how things shook out. And I find it an incredibly powerful uh, framework. I see now why you say past, present, and future, because if you think about owning your own story, how you want to, sh- how you want to tell that story, how you want to shape the trajectory of it, and who, what your core purpose is, really, truly understanding that, it's from that has to be the basis that allows you to actively listen, to yes. get some of that positivity and build some of the resilience that we know is coming out of some of that training. But it strikes me as that's where the adaptability comes from. So if I know I'm really in my deepest part, then I know yeah. what I can change and what I can't change without feeling like I'm giving up me. And I think that's part of the authenticity and the adaptability as we look forward to the future. So absolutely. Groundedness is critical. Okay. So then I'm fascinated with this own your own story and identify your core purpose. Can you just give us some highlights of how, because I know a lot of people have no clue how to define what their core purpose is. So what are the steps? What should they be doing? Yeah. And I have come to think of this as, as an incredibly, not just powerful, but also really nuanced uh, activity. And, uh, but I'll start with the less nuanced part of it, but because I think that's where anyone has to start. And that is uh, owning the idea that we have something that is unique to each of us that is not connected yet to our company or our organization or whatever it is that we're we're doing, but it's work that we have to do to connect to our own core purpose. And I use this exercise that Toyota actually uh, developed for their manufacturing techniques to drill down into the root cause of deficiencies. And that is the five whys. And, you know, I came around to this because I was, I was familiar with the process, but uh, from the man, on the manufacturing side, which seems like it would have very little relevance to what we're talking about here in, in our human side. Um, but I've always heard this starting with why. And I thought, yeah, starting with why is fine, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. And how do we take that and really drill down from the superficial level down into a place where it really matters? Um, and the example that I like to give, you know, I was, when I first arrived at Fort Bragg and I, we told that first part of that story a little bit earlier, is I was assigned not to a platoon, which is what every young lieutenant both desires and needs to be able to both learn and improve their ability to lead, uh, but instead to a staff position as the assistant to the assistant operations officer, sort of the staff lackey in the back office typing up, you know, I was typing up the, the appendices to operations orders, not even the operations orders themselves. And if I had just asked myself why, like, why am I here? It took a year to get out of that position. Why am I here? I would have said, well, I'm here to, to fly the Apache helicopter, to be an aviation leader. 
And that's really a much more superficial level because at the end of the day, I didn't have any control over what it was that I was doing in that position, how that shop was run, what my trajectory was going to be over the next couple of years in a very direct way. Um, so I had to really work to drill down to what my core purpose was. And so why? I was there to, to fly the Apache helicopter. Why? I was trained to do so. Why? Because I'd asked for and I'd earned that opportunity. Why? Because I wanted to serve my country. Well, that's pretty good, right? But you have to force yourself to go to the deepest possible level, like the, the, the least common denominator, right? Uh, why did I want to serve my country? Because I needed to serve. My core purpose that was relevant to that time was service. And that was something that was agnostic from the military, really. I'd grown up, you know, working at the, the food kitchen in our church to bring meals to people that needed it and visiting retirement homes with my mother. So that concept of service was very, very strong in how I was made up and, and still am made up. And so that was the place that I had to connect to be able to get through a time when I didn't have control over the circumstance. And I was really, really frustrated. Asking why just once wouldn't have gone nearly hard, far enough. So that core purpose it's like the heart purpose, right? It belongs to you. It doesn't mean that nobody else has the same purpose, but this belongs to you alone. And then you do the work to connect that core purpose to the mission of the organization in a meaningful way. So how did you reconcile then in the staff office in the back corner, typing up the appendices for the procedural manual? Did you, is there a secret oh, I, sauce in there? <laughs> I, I'm not sure it was reconciled reconciliation so much as addressing the challenge head on. So I went to the captain that I was working for, and this is less about core purpose and more about addressing challenges uh, directly. And I said, hey, sir, can you tell me when this platoon's going to open up? I'm going to keep doing the best job I can at the work I've been given. I'm really grateful for the really positive feedback, but I, but I really am hoping to take a platoon. And the captain looked at me and he said, Lieutenant, the army doesn't owe you anything. So I went back to my work kept doing the best work I could. I remember there was a Saturday that the major that we all worked for called us all into the office for no apparent reason. I like to say the army doesn't have HR in quite the same way as most organizations do. And I remember him looking over at me in the middle of the day and saying, don't worry, Lieutenant, you'll be married by the time you're 25. <laughs> and I've been around just long enough then to know I didn't have to say yes, sir, to everything. So I didn't say yes, sir. But I went to see him the next week and said, sir, I'm going to keep doing the best job I can the work I've been given, but I think that I can do more. And he looked surprised. And then he assigned me one additional duty after the other. And finally, I took that first flight platoon. So I continued to do the work. You know, I was brought up with uh, parents from the Midwest and a grandpa who used to say that if you're scrubbing toilets for 25 cents an hour, you better earn every single penny of those 25 cents doing the best job you can. And so I did the best job I can, the uh, best job I could. And then I continued to reach out and find more and more opportunities to perform. And uh, ultimately, I think that was that connection to purpose kept me going and kept me working hard. Right. Uh, and then I continued to try to find ways to uh, to find my way or earn my way into the next opportunity. It's, you know, it comes back to all of the stories that you told, um, the story about Shay, uh, the, all the people that you've worked with, understanding the why am I here is yeah. what keeps you, Why? what is this about for me? Why am I here for me? Not because the Army said I needed to be, but why am I here for me? Um, is the part that keeps you pushing through some rather difficult, unpleasant things because you still connect. I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a reason. And that's it. And it's amazing to me how many times that core purpose for people comes down to something having to do with service. It yes. takes different shades for absolutely everybody, but it frequently comes down to understanding who you're serving and how you're serving. 
So interesting that that's that interesting piece. Okay, so that's the where we begin. And I know this is not as simple as one exercise to connect to get to your own sense of core purpose and owning your own story and how you're going to integrate that together. Now, talk to me a little bit about how we go into learn. So that's about the present. And it's about the um, deep engagement and the active listening and the team that you are a part of, the circles of influence, if you want to say that, and building grit and resilience. So talk to me about how this all works. Yeah. And again, these categories came from the stories and the lessons learned shared by these leaders. So it was so interesting to see how they did fall out, right? To see the things that were emphasized again and again and again as being absolutely critical. Um, but this deep engagement in the present is, uh, is a really important thing. And I think it comes out that way for a number of reasons. Uh, the first, I think that's probably the most, most evident is, and Tom Peters is one of my favorite guys, you know, he's um, been around for a really long time. And one of the things he will say is excellence is the next five minutes. And I think that's absolutely true. As leaders who are ambitious, there are some, and I think there's a real tendency to say, gosh, this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to be CEO one day, or I'm going to be the VP. And, um, and that's fine to have goals like that. But your focus has to be on doing excellent work right now and doing the best you can right now. Um, in the context of that, the second thing that's really, really important, and this pulls from purpose and, and comes into the deep engagement in the present, is that if you're ever in a leadership position, leading a group, leading an initiative, a team, Leaders understand that their people have to come first, right? We used to say in the army mission first, people always. But if you're going to be working with people, that means empowering people. That means taking care of your people. That doesn't mean that there's not tough love sometimes. But that empowerment of people, that taking care of people requires constant engagement. And that's deep engagement in the present with another human being, ensuring that they can do their best work, ensuring that they can bring their best contributions to the table. And so that's really is being willing to be truly grounded in the present. I think the leaders who don't do that well are often overwhelmed by the various things that they've got going on, but that's because they're not engaged in the present, right? They're engaged in, oh gosh, here's a strategic planning meeting and I've got this meeting and this meeting, but they're not prioritizing what's happening right now with the people that are working with them or for them. And there's just simply, I mean, leadership is absolutely a sacred responsibility. I believe that to the core of my being and, and a leader knows that people have to come first. It's interesting. Um, one of my colleagues says, you know, you pick up any uh, annual report and you'll always hear at the very beginning of the annual report, people are our greatest asset. But you could get really cynical if you look at the rest of the annual report and how little is mentioned about people in that other than some numbers, how many of them we have in different locations and different businesses and how much they cost us. Makes you wonder. Okay. Um, (laughs) Maybe there's a page from HR somewhere in there if we're lucky. But you're right. Every leader will say, my people are really important. But if you stop to think about how hard it is to access you as a leader, Um, how busy you are running from thing to thing to thing, how stressed you are, how little time you have to actually listen, and all of which are legitimate. But the feeling on the other side for people is you're actually not connected. You don't care about me. You care about my output. You don't care about me. That's exactly right. And it's so important to make sure that people understand that not just that you care, but you actually are actively supporting them and their work. And that is just, I mean, that, that, that couldn't be overstated in any way at any point. It's critical to success. 
Yeah. And we have a lot of lessons to do about how to support those. Some of them make it rather difficult for us to support them. They're not exactly our easy, our favorite cup of tea, but that I think is also part of the process. Okay. I'm starting to get, I didn't understand when I first read your book, the, why you chose the language you chose, commit, learn, and launch. And I'm now starting to get it. Because the commit part, the first piece, is about committing to what you're really all about, your core purpose. And it's being clear that that's the basis for your commitment is from that purpose. Okay, I get that one. And then the learn, I didn't get, but I think I'm getting it now, which has to do with learn what people need from you. Is that the right direction? Yes. Yeah, it's that, but it's also, I think, learning what, uh, what they need from you and, and, and what you need to do on any number of different levels, right? But that is certainly what listening is about, um, is exactly understanding how it is that you're needed to engage and what, who other people are and how it is you can best support them. So there is right. quite a bit of that, right. yes. That's a huge amount of learning. Okay, I get, I'm, I'm getting with the program here. Launch, tell me about what launch is about. Yeah, launch becomes a little bit more theoretical um, simply because there's just so many different ways to go about this. But the key themes that really emerged from these conversations with leaders, again, one of them is audacity, the willingness to take risks, the willingness to push yourself out of your comfort zone, to take on stretch assignments, to be willing to fail, to be willing to understand and to, to truly internalize that failure is part of the road to success and that it's not failure that matters. It's what you do with it that counts. Right. So. That's a really big piece. And it's it's a very difficult if you're a minority in a majority world to be willing to take on those risks because you know, and this is all those studies back this up, that you're being uh, assessed differently and judged differently. And so that's a real challenge, I think, both for managers as well as for leaders who are working on themselves. Um, the second part of that is authenticity. And that is as you're as you're moving into your leadership, as you're grounded in the past, as you're engaged in the present is being willing to be authentically who you are. And I know that was a real challenge for most of the leaders that I talked to, just because they're the only woman in an all-male environment that's incredibly insular, that has very, very um, uh, specific norms uh, that are unusual to the rest of the culture. And that's, it's really tough. It's not something I think I did well, by the way. It's um, something that I learned as I grew older and, uh, and became um, a little bit more experienced. And then finally is this adaptability. And that there is a challenge, and you're absolutely right what you said early on, that when you're grounded in your past, when you're grounded in who you are and what matters most, right, and you're engaged in the present, that does allow you to be more adaptable, absolutely. But there's still a tendency for overachievers especially to put together a plan and to execute. And this year, I mean, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that Sometimes those plans aren't going to work and plans are sometimes the things that you deviate from, but you've got to keep the core purpose in mind. And when you stay connected and anchored to that core purpose, to those things that matter the most, then you're able to maneuver whatever kind of a turbulence you might face. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I do find, and I think this is really important, whether you're a minority or whether you're part of the majority, that you can't underestimate the fear you have as a minority member from taking that risk because you feel like you stand out. You feel like you're going to be judged. You feel like the standards are going to be slightly different for you. You feel like if you fail, you fail, not just you, but every other minority member that you're representing. So the, the 
confidence there that I can do at least as well as anybody else is hard to come by because yeah. there isn't anybody else like me out there. So, so I want everybody to recognize how difficult that can be to be to step out of your comfort zone when you're the minority in a majority world. I'm going to steal that phrase from you. I love it. It's a great way to say it. So as you coach people on this willing to fail, to get out of the comfort zone, a phrase obviously I like very much, what's, um, how, do, how do you help them think about that? Well, I have a metaphor that I like, um, okay. which I think is helpful, although it's not the specific brass tacks of the, of the situation. But I often uh, in keynotes will tell you that when you, uh, I'll bring you on to the tarmac for taking off in the Apache and talk about taxiing out for takeoff. You know which way you take off in the Apache. No. People usually up. Sometimes they say backwards. Yeah. Uh, but in the Apache, like in any other aircraft, you turn the nose to face the wind and when you use it the right way, the resistance will help you to rise. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a great metaphor of, for encouragement, for sure. But really, I think in terms of the, the willingness to face failure, the willingness to take on stretch assignments, it really is a decision. It's an active decision every day in the same way that you actively commit each day. You commit to what matters the most. And then you actively search out opportunities to learn, to improve, to contribute. And actually, to your original point on coaching people wanting to leave maybe prematurely certain circumstances, I like to say at least stay long enough to learn something meaningful and to contribute something meaningful. And if you haven't done that, you haven't stayed long enough. There's exceptions, but for the most part, I think that's a great guide. Um, and, and then be actively looking for those opportunities to really stretch yourself. And that is a, an active choice that you've got to decide to make. It's easy to go out to happy hour every day instead. But I think um, the real exciting stuff comes from from doing that hard work, from pushing yourself to learn and grow and contribute. And Fantastic. that's what real satisfaction is. Yeah. yeah, we all love that learning journey. We just get stopped by the fear of failure along the way. So I love this notion of it's an active decision. You make that decision every single day. All right, Shannon, you have one minute because you said it's grounded optimism as the mindset. So you have one minute to tell me what that is. <laughs> well, in a nutshell, and I would refer you back to uh, the, the anecdote of James Stockdale that I won't be able to tell you. So go back and read that. But really grounded optimism is never, ever losing faith that you will successfully get through whatever the challenge is, which you can never afford to lose that faith. But you also can never let go of a brutal analysis of whatever the reality is that you're facing. Mm-hmm. So it's not Pollyannish. It's saying this is the reality. It's really tough. But we absolutely will prevail and we absolutely will get through this together. That mindset is utterly critical to success and it's a big piece of grit. I'd love that one. Uh, One I see practiced day in and day out is really, really critical. The faith that you will get through it, a sense of hope and a brutal understanding of exactly what you're up against without any rose-colored glasses. All right. Shannon, What a fabulous set of stories. My guest today, Shannon Huffman-Polson. The book we've been talking about is The Grit Factor, which is stories of women largely in the most male-dominated organization in the world, in the U.S. military. And this is the lessons she's learned from those stories and from others she's worked with about what makes for grit. You can also find out more about Shannon at her website, The Grit Institute. So, Shanna, thank you very much. This was insightful. I love the model, the core purpose, which is commit, 
the learn, which is the engaged with people, open to hearing, learning something new, and then this launch, authenticity, adaptability, and audacity. What a great framework. And I would say to our audience, join us next week for more wisdom in getting out of your comfort zone. And if you would like to know more about some of the tactics that Shannon has been uh, talking about, the exercises, join us for our brand new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.